Good morning. It's been a real blessing to be at this service. Congratulations to each of you nine. Special to watch you be baptized. Uh, you did a nice job with your testimonies. Very good job. And I'm sure you're glad to have that part over with. The message I have is, um, is, is mainly for you nine this morning. I hope it feels like that this morning. Um, I may actually refer to you by name at a few points, just so it doesn't catch you off guard. Um, the passage is, is from Colossians chapter 3. And the, the main point, I guess, that I want to get across to you is that you are, of course, extremely privileged people this morning, and you're hugely in debt, um, and not the kind of debt that we try to pay off. Um, it's, it's unpayable, but it is um, a debt of, of gratitude and of love to Jesus. And the debt is to live a heavenly life and to die an earthly death. So let's turn to Colossians 3. I think we'll stand for, uh, as I read the scriptures, if you all would stand. I'm just going to read uh, the first four verses to start with, and then uh, we'll talk about that for a bit, and then move on. So Colossians 3, reading from the English Standard Version, verse 1. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. You may be seated. So for my... Uh, class of nine, the, the first point that I want to get across from these verses is that you have a heavenly life by experiencing Jesus' death and resurrection. And Paul says, set your minds on things that are above. Why? Because you have died, he says. You have died. Your life is hidden with Christ and God. How did you die? By putting your faith in Jesus you became united with him in a death like his. That's what it says in Romans 6, 5. It's kind of like his history becomes part of your history. And not only the death, but also the resurrection becomes part of your history, as it goes on to say in Romans 6, 5. And this new resurrected life is hidden with Christ in God. And I want you to think about the significance of that your life hidden with Christ. Where is Jesus? We just read in verse 1 that Christ is seated at the right hand of God. And where are you if your life is hidden with Jesus? Spiritually, you are in a heavenly place also. In fact, that's what it says in Ephesians 2, verse 6. God raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So, Isaac here, you are sitting in the gym on an uncomfortable metal folding chair. 
But actually, part of you, a hidden part of you, is also seated with Jesus in the heavenly places. If you have faith in Jesus, you not only belong to the kingdom of heaven, but spiritually speaking, some part of you is with Christ in the presence of God. And that's kind of why you hear me using the term heavenly life this morning, because I want you to think about that, that kind of spiritual presence with God. You are in close proximity to God, and God is okay with that. That means you are reconciled to God. That was his, his doing. But we needed a death and a resurrection. We needed a death and a resurrection, and one, obviously, that we could not do on our own. So Jesus went through it for us, and through faith, we share in his death and resurrection. I don't know how it all works. I just know that's what the Bible says. And what Paul would have to say about you nine young people this morning, uh, I would paraphrase his words a bit from Colossians 2, 13 and 14. He would say, you were dead once, but God has forgiven you, canceled the record of debt that was against you, freed you from its legal demands, and made you alive with Christ. So the first big takeaway for the class of nine is that experiencing Jesus' death and resurrection has enabled you to have a heavenly life. And this was intentional. It was not an unforeseen but happy side effect of Jesus' death and resurrection. This was intentional, calculated, and incredibly costly. But now God and you are at peace with each other. And so I can say, Joanna, God is okay with having you in close proximity to him. And that's what he wants. More than just okay, he loves it. Just like a dad loves to be with his children. Uh, the second point I want to make from these first few verses is that having this heavenly life, we need some heavenly goals to go along with it. It would be very clumsy, backward, and just messed up to have a heavenly life, but the same old earthly goals. I don't know if you've ever done this before. When you're making a pot of coffee and you're using a drip coffee maker, and so you're going to make some coffee, and you get out, your maybe it's nice filtered water out of the fridge, fresh water, put it in the back of the coffee maker, flip it on, walk away, come back a few minutes later expecting this beautiful pot of fresh coffee. But when you see it, you see that it's actually dirty, gray, muddy-looking coffee, and you pour some in your cup and you take a sip and it tastes awful, like old socks or something. And then you realize that you forgot to put in fresh grinds and you were brewing coffee with two-day-old two coffee grinds. Maybe that's the modern equivalent of, of new wine and old wineskins. But we've got a new life and we need new goals to go along with it. Uh, we still need to decide what our pursuits are, what it is that matters to us, and what we're going to do, what we're not going to do, what we're going to invest in, 
or not. And Paul says in these verses, seek the things that are above. And so I'll address Austin here. You need to make goals that have eternal value, heavenly goals. Things down here aren't going to last very long. Things can be taken away unexpectedly. Things can happen fast, and you can lose them. Make goals with eternal value. Now, the things you do to contribute to those goals may be very commonplace, kind of everyday activities, but, but you're doing them with a view toward heaven, toward serving Jesus. And, and what should these goals be? Uh, they could be helping out those who are in need, honoring your parents, supporting your church, showing the love of Jesus to everyone. But let me tell you what I think your top goal should be. Your top goal ought to be knowing Jesus and abiding in him. There are other goals that are worthy too, but they all kind of fall under this one. And and I'm obviously not talking about just knowing more facts about Jesus, but understanding what Jesus cares about, being more sensitive to his guidance, and abiding in him. It's it's like Martha and Mary. Uh, Jesus told Martha, one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion, which will not be taken away from her. And so you can make the same choice that Mary made. It would be wonderful for Jesus to say about Ashley, for example, Ashley has chosen the good portion, and it will not be taken away from her. Or Anna has chosen the good portion, it will not be taken away from her. Remember, Christ is your life. That's what Paul says here in verse 4. He is your life. And in verse 11, which we haven't read yet, Christ is all and in all. Back in chapter 2, Paul expressed his great, some translations call it a great struggle. It's his great goal for the uh, Colossians, the Laodiceans, all who haven't seen him face to face. And here's how it's put in the NIV, that they may know the mystery of God, namely Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. There is a wealth that comes from knowing Christ, because in him are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And so, Kayla, because you're in college, getting to know Jesus is the most valuable kind of education you can have. It's the most valuable kind of learning you can ever experience. Chemistry is great. Everybody loves chemistry. American history is also good. Um, How to bake a cheesecake, clean a chimney, change a tire, those are all helpful things to know. But someone who knows Jesus and doesn't know how to do any of those things is light years ahead of someone who knows all about valence electrons but doesn't know Jesus. This is the truth that moved Paul to exclaim in Philippians 3.8, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. And sometimes going along with that idea, 
we do, and I'm not against hobbies and other pursuits and, and so on, but sometimes we do have to decide, you know what, this is, I just don't have time for this other activity, this other pursuit. Because my focus, I need to know Jesus. And that's, that's an excellent choice to make sometimes. He needs to be our top priority. Get to know Jesus well. Get to know him well. Talk to him a lot. Pursue him in the Bible. Watch him in the Gospels. What was he like? What did he take time for? What made him angry? What made him sad? Why were his disciples so quiet when he asked them, what were you discussing on the road? Why did he sleep during the storm? Why did he go out to pray alone? And, and as you get to know Jesus and abide in him, his likeness will become more and more part of your life. Verse 10, which we haven't read yet, talks about this transformation. It talks about the new self being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. So Cheyenne, the more you know and abide in Jesus, the more you will become like him. And this is not what Satan wants to happen to any of you, any of us. He wants us to think that knowing Jesus really well is really only important for preachers, for example, or really old people who are about ready to die. Then they can learn to know Jesus well if they want to. That's not at all how it is. And Jesus wants us to understand that knowing him and abiding him is the only way for anyone to have a fruitful, growing life. All right, so let's keep on reading here in Colossians chapter 3. I'll start reading at verse 5 now. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these, you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. So Paul has told us to seek heavenly things, and now he tells us to kill earthly things. And the earthly things here, he's not talking about things that are non-eternal. He's talking about things that... Uh, sinful practices that are motivated by the flesh. So long as we're on earth, we're going to have to deal with the earth in us. And the ugly list is sexual morality, impurity, passion or lust, evil desire, covetousness, which is idolatry. And verse 8 continues the list, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk. And in verse 9 he says, don't lie. Uh, how bad is this list? I mean, these things really are around us constantly. Some of them almost feel like part of American culture. Many people, and even some Christians, don't think they're that big of a deal. 
I want to give you three reasons why earthly, flesh-motivated behavior needs to be put to death. I'll give you three reasons. One is God can't stand these things. And Paul says, this kind of behavior is why the wrath of God is coming. And after similar lists in Ephesians chapter 5, it's kind of a parallel to Colossians 3 in some ways. Paul says in verse 6, let no one deceive you with empty words. In other words, don't let anybody fool you into thinking these things are not that big of a deal. Let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. So if this is the kind of behavior that brings the wrath of God on the sons of disobedience, I can't help but imagine that it's very frustrating to him when those who are seated with him in heavenly places think they're not a big deal and get involved in them. Because this list represents the works of the devil, which in 1 John 3, 8, John says the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. These things are a big deal to God. That's the first reason. He hates them. The second reason we should put earthly behavior to death is because it hinders our new life. I've been employed at Liberty for over 10 years now. And it's been a good experience, and I feel lucky to have the job, although I do reserve the right to complain about parking. One of the reasons I appreciate the job so much is I still remember and try not to forget the months that I spent in 2009, which was not long ago, 2009, trying to get a job and getting nowhere fast. And I still remember praying over my application to Liberty, which I did several different times, prayed about that. But one time I was praying, and shortly after or during the prayer, I heard my email go off in the next room, and I went and checked, and here it was an email from my future boss. So I accepted the job, and I started in a few weeks. I breathed a huge sigh of relief because it hadn't been clear just how long we could survive on Colleen's first, ta- first grade teacher salary. And, and by the way, I'll just insert this here, a little bit of a side, is that we must never forget how privileged we are to have Jesus as our master. Uh, when I forget about the blessing of having a job, that's when I can start focusing on the obligation that goes with it and start complaining about things and so on. So never forget the privilege it is to have Jesus for your master. Anyway, that wasn't the main point I was going to make with this analogy. Uh, So back to my history. So in a few weeks, I started working at Liberty. I was officially Liberty University employee, and I felt blessed. And things changed. Believe it or not, every morning I got up and went to work. And this is not very complicated, but I didn't, for example, sleep in until 8.30 in the morning, And then go to my computer and search for more new job listings. I didn't do that. I didn't start applying for other jobs that were out there. I didn't keep working on my resume. I got up and I went to work. I didn't continue to act like I was unemployed, is what I'm trying to get across. I didn't even act like I was unemployed one out of five days. Every day that there was... That was a a work day. I went to work. 
I put on the behavior of an employee of Liberty University, and to, to do otherwise, even one out of five days a week, would have been quite counterproductive. Earthly behavior, flesh-motivated behavior, needs to be killed off because it hinders our new life. That's the second reason. The third reason to put it to death is because these behaviors are not only counterproductive, which is kind of put it in a weak sort of expression, but they are spiritually threatening. If you practice them enough, they can become what you live for. So instead of living for the spirit, living for the flesh. Romans 8.13 says, If you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. And so the death penalty is not too severe for this kind of behavior. It's not too severe for covetousness and impurity. These behaviors are dangerous enough and wicked enough to deserve capital punishment. They need to be put to death because they're beyond rehab. You're not going to take covetousness and somehow reform the problem into a different kind of covetousness that isn't really a problem. It's not possible. It needs to be put to death. How do we put these earthly behaviors to death? Um, this is going to sound a little bit trite, but uh, the first thing is to decide to do it, that, that this needs to happen, and I'm going to do it. Uh, see, after I became an employee at Liberty, I was not magically transported to work every morning. Uh, when my alarm clock goes off in the morning, it's still up to me to get up, get ready, make my coffee, drive to work, find a parking place, sit down at my computer, and if I'm lucky, uh, write some code. If I'm unlucky, I have to go to a meeting. Even after I was an employee, it was up to me to get to work and stop behaving as though I was unemployed. And so it is, this isn't a completely fair analogy, because you do have the Holy Spirit to guide you and prompt you and empower you. I don't want to downplay that, but at some point it is your choice to decide these things need to be put to death. And it's very important that we realize they need to be put to death, and that this death, I think the main thing Paul is trying to get across with this analogy of death is not that you can put them to death, kill them off, and they're never going to come back. I think that would be pushing the analogy too far because they will, you will have to continue to struggle with these problems. But I think the main thing he's trying to get across is that you need to make no room for them. You need to strive to rid yourselves of them. In other words, if I have an anger problem, I'm not going to decide that, well, hmm, I've got an anger problem, so I'm, I'm going to stop writing nasty emails to my coworkers when I'm angry, which would be good. I'm not, and I'm also not going to be angry um, with people, with church people. When I relate to them, I'm going to relate to them kindly. So, two good things. But then when I get home, you know, and I uh, snap at my wife or children, 
and I decide, well, that's, you know, that's just everyday life. That's just how it is. It's family life. That's how it's going to be. And decide, you know, two out of three is pretty good. Well, that's not putting the anger problem to death. It's, it's leaving room for it. And so if I do anything hurtful out of anger, even if it's a small thing like maybe um, tracking mud across the floor, um, when, I've, when, I have, when I choose to do that out of anger, I'm choosing to feed the anger problem and listen to the flesh instead of listening to the spirit, which, which says, respond in love. When you do things out of anger, you're feeding the flesh. So Romans 13, 14 says, make no provision for the flesh. Don't keep feeding it. So in my mind, the main point of this put-it-to-death expression is that we understand we need to rid ourselves of these behaviors completely, and we don't let them survive in a, in a restricted form. We don't just put them on bread and water and decide, well, that's okay. We're supposed to kill them. So... My fourth takeaway for you is that earthly, flesh-motivated behavior needs to be put to death. It's never okay to do things because your sinful nature suggested it. Even if, even if what it's suggesting may seem kind of like a gray area, not that, maybe it's not that big. If it's motivated by the flesh, you should not respond to it. Um, what you vowed this morning, and many of us have pledged, is to renounce Satan, the world, all evil works, and your own carnal will and sinful desires. Here's some ways Satan wants to trip you up in the area of earthly death. He wants you to think that these sins are not actually that big of a deal. That's one way he can trip you up. Secondly would be to think you can't stop doing them. You're just not going to make progress. So just accept it. Satan would like to trip you up that way. He would like you to think the fact that you're struggling means you actually aren't a Christian and you need to go find some other experience. That's not true. He wants you to think... He may try to get you to think, well, you have messed up too much. And at this point, Jesus is angry at you and doesn't really love you anymore. You don't have to give him time to cool down before he starts to love you again and forgive you. So that's a common attack of Satan. It's not true. Even, even me, imperfect dad that I am, when I get mad at my children, I still love them. And I want, I want this to be cleared up. I want reconciliation. And I'm a very imperfect dad. God is, is much, much better. A much better father. He will love you even if you frustrate him. And he wants to forgive you. He wants reconciliation. So just to recap where we're at so far, a heavenly life is where we need to go from here. A heavenly life living for what is above seeking eternal goals, growing in our knowledge of Jesus, and then an earthly death, a zero-tolerance policy for the flesh. Okay, we're going to spend just a couple minutes here on our new family members, verses 11 through 17.
They're in the same process of renewal. And I'll start reading a verse. And I just have just a couple comments on this section. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one is a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body. And be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. I basically have one main point for this section, but there are two um, thoughts that I have to express before we get to that point. Okay? So the number one um, sub-point is that the family you are going to join, the family you have joined, is not a group of perfect people. You're not joining a perfect local body. So there's this thing of having to bear with each other and forgive each other. If you have complaints, forgive each other. So this is not a perfect family. Uh, each of us is still working to put the earthly parts, bits in us to death. That's, keep that in mind. And the second thing I want you to notice in these verses is that this family relationship is created and sustained by Christ. In verse 11, Paul says, Christ is all and in all. That is what makes this family a possible. It's what, you know, the most important thing about a person is whether they know Christ or not. That is the most important trait of a person. And so if two people both know Christ. They have a lot in common. I don't, I don't care if you drive a Jaguar and I drive a really old Toyota Camry. In Christ, we have the same level of privilege and the same level of debt. Outside of Christ, you may have slightly more debt. But Christ is all and in all. That's verse 11. Verse 12 says, we are God's chosen ones. Jesus is why we're God's chosen ones. Verse 14, Christ is why we forgive each other. Verse 15, Christ is the source of peace that rules among us. Verse 16, the word of Christ yields all kinds of upbuilding spiritual encouragement. And in verse 17, the name of Christ is behind everything we do for each other. This family relationship is sustained by people who are centered on Jesus. That's what makes it work in spite of its imperfections. So, for you nine members of the class, 
Uh, if you have trouble getting along with your church family, the root problem could well be that your relationship with Jesus is not what it should be. If you have trouble loving and appreciating your church family, it may be because you're not where you're at with Jesus. And we need to ask ourselves this question. Am I letting his peace rule? Am I forgiving because of his forgiveness? Is his word dwelling in me? Am I growing in my knowledge of him? Is he the one thing that matters to me most? It comes back, well, it comes back around to our heavenly life and our earthly death. So just some concluding thoughts. It is an incredible privilege to belong to Jesus. Uh, you nine young people up here are very privileged. Uh, never forget how privileged you are. But you also have a huge and unpayable debt of loving service to Jesus. And we each have that. We're each very privileged. And we each have this huge obligation of loving service to Jesus. So we need to set our minds on things above, knowing Christ, growing into him. And we need to die an earthly death. Renounce your own carnal will and sinful desires. And my prayer for you nine is that you would continue to grow and become an example to all of us and a challenge to us. And we want to see you do well. And I believe you will do well. God bless you.